Hi, this is Kilian from Rest Reflections. Welcome to episode 23 of At Work, a podcast which is all about inequality and justice and oppression in the workplace. As always, I would like to invite you to send us your questions, your queries, your dilemmas, anything that you would like us to dedicate some time, maybe an episode to respond to. Get in touch. Contact at restreflections.co.uk or at work at restreflections.co.uk and we'll do our best to respond. For this episode, I would like to expand on some musing and a particular thread that I have done on Twitter. But before I get there, I would like to, I guess, ask you to do something for me. Could we all think about an instance, an event, an incident where we have personally and directly challenged someone who behaved in a way that we deem discriminatory, right? We focus on race here, as you know. So let's try to keep that focus. So think about the last few times or at least one time where you have attempted to get a white person to see, to get a white person to understand that their behavior, that their words were discriminatory or racist. And zoom in on the person's responses, what they might have said to you, what their body language might have been like, what emotion you might have been able to perceive in them. And perhaps also what other people, if there were witnesses around, what other people might have said, what they themselves might have looked like. So take a minute or so to consider this. And so the reason why I'm inviting you to do this reflection, to do this recollection work is because I've come to the realization that there is a particular dynamic that gets in motion where people of power, people in position of power are challenged on their racism is that they can very often position themselves as unsafe. Right. And so what I have posited is that they therefore mistake their sense of discomfort or uncomfortableness with a sense of unsafeness. Now, I'm not going to argue that in those moments, people who claim to be feeling unsafe are all being dishonest. I think it is very likely that in this moment in time, they feel unsafe. And I think that's a very important phraseology. They feel unsafe in this situation. But what I'm saying is that they are not unsafe, for starters. The second thing, which is a correlate of this particular dynamic, is that in society, when people who hold social power say something of a discriminatory nature on the ground of race, there is a tendency, they do have a tendency to minimize their action. And so here to mistake harm for offense. 
So I didn't mean to offend. We have the right to offend. Everybody should be able to take a little bit of offense. Now, what I have been trying to argue for some time is that, in fact, what we are talking about is rarely offense. What we are talking about most of the time is harm, right? This discursive harm is symbolic harm, whether you want to call it harm by speech. Nonetheless, it is a form of harm. And we do know that it is harm because, again, we have the data. We do know that discriminatory words have a physiological and a psychological impact on targets. So we are definitely in the domain of the harmful. So what you see here is an interesting kind of parallel, you might say, or corresponding process whereby the harm that is done is actually positioned as not harmful, as offensive, so is a minimization. And then when it comes to the challenge, the challenge is position as harmful, as at least having the potential to create harm in the person who is being challenged. So let us summarize here what I said. What I am saying is that there is a tendency to mistake discomfort for a lack of safety for the people in position of power. And at the same time, there is a tendency to minimize harm, real harm that is carried out on the marginalized by characterizing it as offense, which is essentially a way to deny that very harm. So that is important because what tends to happen in situation as a result of that particular dynamic is that we get into scenarios where the person who is at the receiving hand of harmful or discriminatory behavior or word speaks, sometimes may speak in a way that is impassioned, sometimes may speak in a way that might not necessarily please the person at the receiving end of their comment, of their feedback, but nonetheless speak from a place of having been harmed, wronged in some way. Right. And the person at the receiving end of this feedback, of this challenge, kind of refused to engage on the basis of I feel unsafe. And so by doing that, there is a very particular dynamic, right, that is being done. There's a very particular maneuver that is being done whereby they position themselves as being the recipient of harm, as being at risk of harm. And so therefore, indirectly, position the person who is doing the challenge as being a perpetrator of harm. So you have a role reversal, which links us to the framing around Davo that is seen in abuse situations. So look it up if you're not familiar with it, D-A-R-V-O. And that's a process by which a perpetrator essentially switches role with its victim or target. And so that happened, but that happens so certainly in society and so by extension within organization because of the kind of sanctity that has been afforded 
to affect or to feelings. And I'm thinking about, for example, phrases like feelings are valid, feelings can't be wrong, whatever we feel needs to be honored. And I agree with that up to a certain point, because of course I'm a clinician and so I work with affect, I work with feelings. But actually what we also need to do is to remember that feelings are also a product that are condition that are shaped by our social context. And so as product shaped uh, by the social context and within particular social histories and particular structures and relational configuration, they also serve a function. And that function necessarily is going to be connected to the social order or disorder. And, and to therefore the status quo. And so if we only say, well, feelings are feelings, feelings are valid, you know, nothing wrong with feeling what we're feeling. What we do is we deprive ourselves with the opportunity, not only to think critically about the way we may come to reproduce via our affect, via our, our feelings, um, oppression. And so therefore, uh, maintain oppressive structures at large, but we deprive ourselves of the opportunity to grow, of the opportunity to connect to all that we are. It's very important. And, and so I'm conscious that I'm talking about something that some people might find difficult to tolerate. But I feel very, very passionate about this particular issue because I've seen it. I've seen the potential that it has to create harm, to create very specifically structural harm. Because when a person speaks something that actually is unpalatable, within a particular context, within a particular institution, the knee-jerk response would be to treat this person as a problem. We've covered that on a number of occasions in a number of podcasts. We thought about how we tend to locate the problem, how we tend to locate the disturbance in people who are speaking of a problem, speaking of a disturbance. So that is not a new idea that I have introduced to you guys. I speak about it quite frequently when it comes to the group dynamics, when it comes to the group process of race, of racism and of racial exclusion. So this is a central dynamic. And so because we know that there's already that risk of a particular individual being positioned as the problem, where when there is unreflection, unthinking, or an unwillingness to think, and I say think about feelings, right? When person says in relation to a marginalized person who is already, as we said, at risk of being positioned a particular way within the institution, I feel unsafe. You are creating unsafety. You are making me unsafe then what we're saying, we are providing further ammunition to the institution to potentially further problematize that person. So that is a serious problem. And so that's when we get onto 
allegation of bullying, allegation of, you know, meanness, allegation of people not being social, not fitting in, that tend to be directed at particular bodies. And I'm speaking here as a black woman. And I know how very easy it is for me to be accused of bullying if I challenge anything that is done to me. So it's something that we want to think about very, very, very carefully. Let us go back to the instance that I had ask you to hold in mind. When I ask you to think about how it went, ask you to reflect on the body language, on the reaction, on a word that might have been spoken, on the atmosphere that might have been created. Was unsafeness a feature? It might have been phrased, it might have been articulated or verbalized, and it might not. But you might have picked up that people acted in a way as though they needed protection, as though they needed to be defended in some ways. And I see that very often where I challenge, for example, a white woman who might have said something inappropriate. And white men, men, sometimes were not even white, would come to the defense of the particular individual because I said, hey, this is not acceptable, as though there was something in this particular word which were capable of inflicting harm. So we are really in the domain here of fantasy. We are in the domain here of the social discourses, the construction of femininity, the construction of white femininity, and the construction of black femininity. But I'm using this as an example. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the dynamic that I'm talking about is only limited to white women, black women relations. Of course, no. But I'm giving you an example to remind you that that sense of unsafeness, that sense of needed to be protected is something that doesn't necessarily have to be verbalized as such, that can be conveyed in various ways. So what can be done when it comes to these particular dynamics? First of all, going back to the misconception and the mistaking of social harm or discursive harm or symbolic harm for offence. Stepping on my new shoes is offensive. It's hardly going to harm me, right? Telling me that you don't like the color of my shirt might be offensive. Telling me that you don't like my new haircut might be, although that is starting to be a little bit more tricky territory-wise because hair might be one of those physiological features that is connected to ancestry. So we're getting into territory here that becomes a little bit more murky. But generally, you didn't like my haircut, like the color of my hair, that might be offensive. If you call me a name that is non-racial and not connected to an identity characteristic, that again is a little bit murky, but it's more likely to be offensive. Now, if you call me the N-word, that is harmful. If you engage in hate speech, that is harmful. Of course, if you engage in harassment, racial harassment, that is harmful. And so there is a degree, you might argue, it's a quantitative rather than a qualitative difference. I don't know. What I would say is that we do have the evidence base quite clearly, which indicate without the shadow of a doubt that discriminatory conduct 
does not have to be behavioral. It doesn't have to be action-based for it to do harm psychologically and to do harm physiologically, right? So discriminatory words do harm people. I'm going to repeat that. Discriminatory discourses harm people, right? It's not a matter of people's feeling being hurt. It is a matter of people being psychologically and physically harmed. And sometimes, and I've had that experience fairly recently, where people say, no, stick and stone and all that nonsense. Now, let me tell you something, right? Because again, the empirical evidence is here. If you are interested, please send me an email or just go to Live in Wild Black, where I've put quite a few references of fairly new studies. So let me tell you this so that we can get rid of that myth once and for all that words are not going to harm you. They are going to harm you. They're not going to harm you in the moment. They're not going to cut you. There's not going to be blood, which is a very infantile way to think about violence and harm anyway. But some people will believe that as long as there's no bruise, as long as there's no injured feeling and someone crying, and so that means that there is no harm. That means that you can just brush it off. But we do know that cumulatively, all this stuff is likely to have an impact. So, sorry I got a little bit passionate there, but very straightforwardly, let's stop treating language, hateful, discriminatory text discourses as being harmless offense. Let's all accept that words have the power to do harm. And we know that harm because we have the evidence for it. That's very important. In relation to people in position of power, having the tendency to mistake discomfort for unsafeness. This is just a matter of exposure. It's a matter of exposure and it's a matter of understanding the difference. And you can't understand the difference if you're going to physiologically respond in a way that is activated because you haven't been called out before, because you haven't been forced to think about your action, because you haven't been challenged. And so I'm afraid that this is a matter of being exposed again and again to being challenged, being prepared to be open to the discomfort that that creates. Because essentially, the more you sit with the discomfort, the more you accept that this is part of the parcel of being a human being and part of the parcel of being a human being interacting with people of different ethnic or racial background that sometimes you are going to feel uncomfortable and sometimes you're going to put your foot in it and then you're not going to kill no one. And in most cases, relationships are salvageable. If you can sit with that discomfort, then you build a tolerance for it. And I'm talking about people who are generally feeling unsafe. You build a tolerance for it. And then you understand that, you know what? Nobody's going to collapse. You're not going to have a heart attack. Nobody's going to pursue you with a knife. You're not going to lose your job if people were losing their job because of issues of race and racism. We would not have, say, an employment tribunal success rate for race discrimination cases of about three, four, five percent or so. So, as I said, we are thinking here about fact rather than engaging with the fantasy of harm that really don't add up with the evidence that we have. 
And then finally, there is the willingness to actually consider the person who is making the charge, the person who is raising their voice, perhaps within their neck above the parapet, to actually offer them some support to ensure that they are not faced with walls of bystanderism, of silence when they're speaking, to understand that there is a risk. There is always a risk to challenging people in position of power and to challenging social structures. So the question is also, what can we do to hold on to compassion for the person we challenge, even when they make us feel uncomfortable, particularly, I would say, when they make us feel uncomfortable, and to understand that those risks that we are carrying need to be shared, that we are doing everyone a favor, even though we may not like it because it doesn't make us feel good. So this has been Gillen from Race Reflections, a little bit of musing on that dynamic, that misunderstanding, those misunderstanding. Listen, guys, I don't want to engage necessarily in trying to work out with lying, with not lying, with truly believing that they're unsafe. This is really not the point of the matter. The point of the matter is that people are not unsafe. And so this is it. And if people are not unsafe, they need to connect with that or to that objective reality. Thank you very much. And as always, please take care.